It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Brown sugar. Well, that song, the Rolling Stones classic, is being retired. States to 1971. Now, retired just means the Rolling Stones are out on tour and they say they're not going to play it anymore. Keith Richards, who's now 77, telling the L.A. Times, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out with the sisters quite where the beef is. Didn't they understand it was a song about the horrors of slavery? But they're trying to bury it. Well, obviously, we're in a different era of cultural sensitivity. By the way, people can't understand half the lyrics anyway, so that may have explained why it has survived so long. But as the story points out, the very first verse depicts slaves being beaten and sold in Louisiana with a reference to a slaver who whips women just around midnight. There's also a what's described here as a non-consensual sex encounter between the violent master and a young female slave. I don't mean to make light of it. You know, obviously, when the song came out and everybody loved the, the music of it, uh, I don't know if there was a great debate at the time about the very graphic imagery, but now... Uh, the Stones have decided to, you know, look, you can still listen to it anytime you want. You can stream it. You can download it. You can buy it. You may have the album, for those of you who still have albums. And, you know, if you go back and look at the Beatles, you know, who are getting so much publicity now with the big Let It Be documentary coming, which I'm very excited about. I mean, I've listened to a couple of their old songs, which you could never make today. Like the one where John Lennon sings, Catch you with another man, that's the end, uh, little girl. And he's threatening this woman who's maybe fooling around with some other guy. Threatening to kill her. All right, let's move on here. Uh, I talked about John Gruden. Uh, you undoubtedly know the story of the Las Vegas Raiders coach who lost his job courtesy of the New York Times, publishing, obtaining and publishing a bunch of emails he sent, including some as recently as, as four years ago. This is not ancient history in which he used, I won't even repeat it, all kinds of homophobic, misogynistic and racist terminology in writing to a guy who was the head of the Washington football team and others. Well, somebody has gotten caught up in that is Adam Schefter, he is ESPN's top NFL reporter. And there was a, uh, the Los Angeles Times reporting this. Uh, he got caught up into it because it came out in an in, uh, email that he sent that he submitted to a source an unpublished story for the source to review before he even turned it in to his editors. This was during the, the NFL lockdown in, back in 2011. And he wrote to the source, Schefter did, uh, please let me know if you see anything that should be added, changed, tweaked. Thanks, Mr. Editor, for that and the trust. Plan to file this to ESPN about 6 a.m.? Wowza. So um, Schefter is now talking about these. He says, look, you know, it's a pretty common practice to run information past sources. Uh, this was a very sensitive story, so I took an extra step. But he also went on to say it was a step too far and I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I mean, most newsrooms have rules against this sort of thing. Of course, you want to uh, make sure that you get everything right. And sometimes you call somebody up and say, look, I'm going to quote you as saying this, or I'm going to reporting this. Do you have any guidance on that? You don't give them editorial control of the story, but you do want to make it part of the fact-checking process. Now, I know a couple of investigative reporters who routinely send the whole thing. You know, basically saying pick it apart. Not that they can say, you know, I don't want you to publish this part or this part because I don't like it. But if they can find a factual error, I personally think that's not a good practice. 
you know, maybe there are extenuating circumstances. Uh, but on a sports story, look, uh, Schefter got caught up in this. It's really about John Gruden, but he's acknowledging that he should not have done that. All right, let me go to number one because I was absolutely riveted yesterday watching William Shatner and three other astronauts take off and land on Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rocket. Uh, it was just getting underway. The countdown had been halted when I was recording the podcast yesterday. You know, it's not just that Captain Kirk is 90 years old, in amazing shape, uh, very witty, articulate with it. So there's a natural fascination. You know, the guy who commanded the spaceship Enterprise, beam me up, Scotty, actually going into all outer space, becoming the oldest person ever to go into outer space. But when he came down and came out, he was so overcome by raw emotion. And I've seen this replayed again and again, and, and rightly so. When he talked about, you know, what he didn't expect was to see, was to very quickly, uh, you know, in a matter of, you know, maybe a couple of minutes at most, I mean, the whole thing was 11 minutes, blast off through the very thin blue atmosphere of Earth. And suddenly you're in blackness. He said, suddenly you're staring into death. Yeah, you couldn't survive without a spaceship and an oxygen mask and all that in the vastness of space. And, it's, you know, looking back, a lot of past astronauts have talked about seeing the whole globe and how uh, amazing and, and exhilarating and inspiring that is. But for Shatner, it was seeing how thin the atmosphere is, which gets you into a conversation about climate change, you know, that supports life on Earth, and suddenly, boom, you're out of it. And you're looking out the window of this spacecraft, and you just see black, just pure black as far as the eye can see. So, you know, this was an absolute masterful PR coup for Jeff Bezos, who, of course, was there to greet Shatner and the three others when they came out. And um, Shatner, you know, grabbed Bezos by the shoulders and said, I just have to thank you for the most profound experience of my life, something I could never have imagined. And they hugged, and Bezos was, you know, giving everybody a champagne shower and all, you know, great free advertising for what is a service that Blue Origin is going to provide. The other two, two of the four people who were up there paid $250,000 for the little space tourism ride. But as I mentioned yesterday, why is television so uninterested in the other story about Blue Origin and that is, you know, a deep dive investigative piece in the Washington Post owned by Bezos. It talks about uh, what a dysfunctional, one person called it an authoritarian bro culture at the company, uh, insensitive to women and all that. That got almost nothing. And, of course, you know, look, I get the dramatics of it, Shatner, space, the actual launch, the landing, everything was picture perfect. But now there's another story by Reuters, an investigative piece in which Amazon, founded, of course, by Bezos, is being accused, has repeatedly been accused, of knocking off products it sells on its website and exploiting its vast trove of internal data to promote its own merchandise at the expense of other sellers. The company's denying the accusations. This seems like a classic potential antitrust violation. There is an FTC lawsuit against Amazon, not about this particular information, but overall. And so thousands of pages of internal Amazon documents examined by Reuters, this includes emails, strategy papers, business plans, there's a major leak there somewhere, 
show the company ran a systemic campaign of creating knockoffs. You know, you find somebody's got a good product, you make a kind of a cheaper version of the same thing, and here's where the real zinger comes in, manipulating search results to boost its own product lines in India, one of its biggest markets. There's also a U.S. connection I'll get to in a second. So the documents reveal Amazon has what's called a private brands team in India, secretly looking into, you know, the other companies use Amazon as their lifeline to sell stuff. I mean, it is, what, the world's biggest online retailer now? And then they use that information to copy the products, then offer a very similar product with its own branding on its own platform. Uh, And what they do is they rig the search results, reading directly from the Reuters story, rigging Amazon search results so that the company's products would appear, as one 2016 strategy report put it, in the first two or three search results when customers are looking around. Among the victims, a popular shirt brand in India, John Miller, uh, owned by uh, uh, a guy who's known as the retail king of India. Amazon decided to follow the measurements of John Miller's shirts right down to the neck circumference and sleeve length. Talk about a knockoff. So they're producing the exact same thing. Maybe the quality is not as good. Maybe it's cheaper and they can make more money on it. And then... They figure out how to, re- they use words like we reference it, we benchmark it, we replicate it. Um, and they created a brand for the uh, Indian market called Solimo. Um, and it's pretty simple. Quote, this is from one of the documents, use information from Amazon to develop products and then leverage the Amazon platform to market these products to our customers. And some of them are now offered for sale on Amazon's U.S. website. So, you know, India becomes kind of the test market here. So we'll see whether that gets, you know, one thousandth as much attention as Shatner. And I'm not taking anything away from Shatner. What he's accomplished here, this guy's an actor who played on a TV series, whether you're into Star Trek or not, you know, half a century ago, and now he's actually gone into space. So that's a great emotional story. And I don't take anything away from Bezos for pulling this off. He started this company... And he's now pulled off two successful flights with, you know, he was on the first one. Who would have cared about the second one? It would have seemed routine without Shatner. But I think he's going to have to answer to both this story about Amazon and Reuters and the story in the Washington Post, which he refused to comment for, but didn't make any effort to block his newspaper from publishing, having to do with the culture of Blue Origin. All right, number two, the latest from Donald Trump. Donald Trump has put out one of his statements to the press. Remember, he's off uh, Facebook, he's off Twitter, he's off Instagram, he's off YouTube. And in that, the former president says, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, Republicans will not be voting in 22 or 24. It is the single most important thing for Republicans to do. So, you know, he's saying the quiet part out loud now. I mean, for a long time, he's made it clear that he's going to talk about what he calls the rigged election, what he calls the stolen election, you know, virtually every day. And not only that, he is obviously pressuring Republicans to at least embrace his view of the 2020 election. And this is the part where I say, hey, 
Unfortunately for the former president, there is no independent evidence of widespread fraud. The various recounts and audits that have been done have not shown widespread fraud. I mean, I read the other day, oh, three people were indicted. I think it was Michigan. Don't hold me to that. For voter fraud, okay, well, three people doesn't amount to, you know, enough to turn the state around. The Bar DOJ didn't find widespread fraud. All of these lawsuits, federal and state, could not substantiate widespread fraud. But nevertheless, Donald Trump has made clear, first of all, that he's probably running in 2024. Now, that could change between now and then. He's 75 years old. But let's assume that he is. He's sending this message not only to the public, but to Republicans that, hey, if you want people to turn out, you got to solve, which, which in his case means uh, overturn the results state by state of the election, the electoral college results, results that put Joe Biden in the White House. Uh, now, Trump obviously has endorsed a number of candidates who are willing to embrace that rhetoric. Uh, it's now a litmus test. If you want his endorsement, you got to at least appear with him in public and not contradict him. Uh, even some of those, you know, who used to talk about Donald Trump's role, for example, in January 6th, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, they don't talk about it anymore. I mentioned the other day, Steve Scalise, House Whip. Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace asked him three times, do you believe the election was stolen from Donald Trump? He wouldn't answer. He went into, oh, the Constitution and, and the states and, and all that. He would not provide a straight answer. Which leads me into this Atlantic piece saying, um, Americans are ready now. If anything, they're overprepared. Many members of the uneasy coalition of Democrats and former Republicans who oppose Trump are frantically focused on the danger of Trump and his GOP allies trying to steal the 2022 and especially the 2024 elections. And the piece in the liberal magazine goes on to say this is not without justification. Trump's henchmen are frantically focused on stealing it. But, and this matches a couple of pieces that um, became fashionable a couple of weeks ago. They are missing the graver danger. Trump could win this fair and square. And I think there's something to that if you look at where President Biden is right now. On the other hand, you know, he's being president for almost nine months, we're talking here about an election that's more than three years away. Uh, so what The Atlantic says is, look, uh, it was a serious wound when Trump won in 2016. It was also, you know, <laughs> he got the most electoral votes. That's the way the system is supposed to work. Uh, his attempts to cling to power in 2020 poured salt in the wound, says this piece. Trump losing in 2024 and trying to steal the election would be even more catastrophic. But a straightforward victory, a very real possibility, could be a mortal injury. Look, a Trump candidacy, says David Graham in The Atlantic, is almost certain. His nomination is probable. Uh, he's done everything except officially declare his candidacy. Could he win? Of course he could. If the Biden administration continues this air of chaos and free fall, not necessarily going to happen, but certainly not crazy to say that. Um, Biden has certain advantages. Being the incumbent is a big advantage, but, you know, it's not as big an advantage as it used to be. Biden's approval rating is underwater. We talked about the polls yesterday. Biden has lost favor with independent voters. Um, now, the Atlantic story references a column or a couple of columns in the New York Times by Ross Douthat, a conservative never-Trumper, who says that Trump may be an inspiring dictator, but it doesn't really matter if he can't execute it, he can't pull it off. But, 
says the Atlantic. Douthat underestimates the changed institutional landscape that would greet Trump if he's the one taking office January 20th, 2025. He would likely control both houses of Congress with Republicans, but he had that last time. The difference here is, last time, there were a lot of Republicans, Paul Ryan, for example, uh, who weren't on board with his agenda. If Donald Trump wins the presidency again, he will have uh, the Republicans in the House and the Senate pretty much in lockstep with him because he will have gotten rid of, purged would be a a good word, uh, the kinds of Republicans who were more independent or didn't agree with something he wanted to do or were just wary of him personally. Um, He would have the possibility of naming another justice to the Supreme Court, with Stephen Breyer giving no sign of retiring. and the Republican resistance to Trump has just been winnowed away. It would basically be Mitt Romney in the Senate, a handful of reps in the House, and Trump is trying to purge them as well. So that's uh, what would be a very dark scenario from the liberal point of view laid out in the Atlantic. Uh, meanwhile, the House committee investigating the Capitol riot issued a subpoena yesterday to Jeffrey Clark. He is the former Justice Department official that no one had heard of. Uh, who was very deeply involved in Trump trying to pressure DOJ to, in turn, pressure the states, certain states like Georgia, to overturn the certification of Electoral College on behalf of Joe Biden in those states. And uh, Trump at that time, according to documents that have since come out, was threatening to make Jeffrey Clark the acting attorney general, so he would have more leeway to do what he wants if the then-acting Attorney General, I know this is like a giant chess game, right? Remember, Bill Barr resigned uh, just before Christmas of last year. Jeffrey Rosen, uh, you know, conservative guy, became acting AG, but Rosen drew the line. He's been giving eight hours of depositions to the House January 6th Committee um, on how he resisted many of these efforts, and now uh, the committee wants to hear from Mr. Clark, we'll see where that goes, and Steve Bannon and others are resisting those subpoenas. All right, number three is kind of a continuation of what I was talking about, um, the impact of Donald Trump in 2022, in 2024. Well, how about in 2021? Because you have the Virginia governor's race coming up this November. Now, in Virginia, I mentioned this once before in the podcast, uh, this is a very big story for the Washington Post because uh, the Washington Post, Virginia, is part of the circulation area. You have former Governor Terry McAuliffe, former head of the DNC. There's a one-term limitation uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia running for his old job. And ordinarily, you know, he was a pretty popular governor, pretty well-known nationally. Uh, He'd be expected to win this easily. Running against a Republican named Glenn Youngkin. I live here and I had never heard of Glenn Youngkin. But at a rally yesterday, headlined by Steve Bannon, who seems to be back in Trump's good graces after being um, excommunicated, I guess would be a good verb, once he left the White House back in 2017, um, Trump was praising uh, McAuliffe's opponent, Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin is a great gentleman. Uh, We won in 2016. We won in 20. Most corrupt election in the history of our country. He's calling in to this rally. After the rally, McAuliffe, who would love to make this a referendum on Donald Trump, uh, tweeted Glenn Youngkin was endorsed again tonight by Donald Trump at a rally where attendees pledged allegiance to a flag flown at the deadly January 6th insurrection. Beyond disturbing, this is sick. 
And Glenn is honored to have Trump's endorsement, but actually not so much, because guess who wasn't at this rally decided to skip it? Glenn Youngkin. He, he wasn't there. He just found something else to do. He's trying to sort of get Trump voters without hugging Trump too tightly. Um, and that's a very pretzel-like thing to attempt to do. But it's a very close margin of error race right now. So as a result, McCall is bringing in the big guns. In the final weeks, Barack Obama will hit the campaign trail for Terry McAuliffe. Stacey Abrams will show up. Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta. First Lady Jill Biden. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will hold a fundraiser. I don't think Terry McAuliffe's problem is not raising enough money. I think the, his problem is, if this was just a regular Virginia election, he would probably would pull it out. And he may yet. We'll see. He's been doing a lot of TV lately, and he's been sending out, you know, hey, we're, we're in danger of blowing it. You know, he's trying to get complacent Democrats in his Commonwealth to make sure they show up in the polls in an off-year election. You don't have the big turnout like you do in a presidential year. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's not about money. It's the fact that some of the it's become a nationalized election because McAuliffe talks about Trump a lot. Trump talks about Youngkin a lot. Uh, they're talking about things like critical race theory and other hot-button cultural issues that McAuliffe doesn't want to run on. Uh, and so if he loses, this will be seen by all the political press and by Donald Trump himself as a victory for Trump and a flashing neon warning light for Dems heading into the midterms next year. If, on the other hand, McAuliffe pulls it out, um, it will be seen as, well, it's not that easy, even with Trump's backing, um, to win a race that the Democrats should win based on past performance. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on now to number four. Um, the Hunter Biden and the paintings thing has really bothered me because I think if Eric Trump or Don Jr. suddenly decided to become a great painter while their dad was president and suddenly selling off their watercolors or whatever for a lot of money, the press would go haywire. But it really hasn't been that big a story. So a New York Post reporter asked Jen Psaki about it at yesterday's press briefing. Um, and the Post reporter, um, a guy named Stephen Nelson, said, what about the ethical implications here? The president's son selling multiple paintings. I think they, they fetched about, yeah, $75,000 a piece. Um, and I know this is your favorite topic, Jen Psaki said, but again, it is still the purview of the gallerist. We still do not know and will not know who purchases any paintings. And the president remains proud of his son. But Hunter wasn't supposed to know either, so there wouldn't be any possibility that somebody could give a lot of big bucks for a painting he or she doesn't really like as a way of getting influence with the Biden White House. But then there were photographs of him, you know, um, hobnobbing with some of the people who came to check out the painting. So it didn't seem like a totally blind thing. Walter Schaub, who's a former head of the U.S. government of government U.S. office, excuse me, of government ethics, and who was a constant, constant, constant presence on CNN and MSNBC, ripping Donald Trump for four years. Well, he now says, at least on Twitter. These are legitimate questions. It's disappointing to hear Jen Psaki send a message the White House thinks the public has no right to ask about ethics. After the last four years, these questions have never been more important, says Schaub. I know this isn't a popular opinion, but this stuff matters. Um, but it hasn't really caught on, and I think part of the reason is 
uh, the mainstream media are like, oh, you know, Hunter Biden selling some paintings, uh, not that big a deal. I, it, I mean, it is a double standard. There's simply no way around it. You cannot imagine. I mean, look at all the attention paid to Ivanka Trump. Well, look, in fairness, Ivanka Trump was a White House official. Her husband, Jared Kushner, was a White House official. Therefore, they were fair game. Therefore, there were questions of nepotism. Therefore, you know, they, were, they put themselves in the arena in the line of fire. But Don Jr. didn't do that. And I can only imagine uh, if he had maybe sculptures. You know, he could have sold sculptures or, you know, whatever. Uh, all right. Uh, let's get in a little COVID update here. I was very happy to see that the number of average new cases now 88,000 yesterday, finally below 90. Remember when it went below 100, it had been as high as 166. The daily death toll is still disturbingly high. It's below 2,000 a day, but it's still around 18, 1,900, depending on the day. I have to think that's a lagging indicator, and this isn't a sign that the Delta surge has peaked and is coming down. And I'll continue to monitor that for you. Meanwhile, the FDA or an advisory FDA panel today will hear from Moderna, which is trying to get uh, authorization for its booster shot. The Pfizer booster shot has already been recommended by the FDA for certain groups over 65, people with compromised immune systems. Moderna would give just a half a dose of its vaccine to people, under, people over 65 and um, people of any age who are at risk of severe illness. Despite the fact that President Biden thinks everybody should be able to get the booster shot, we'll see how that plays out. So I, the FDA drives me crazy because it takes so long to do everything. And I guess tomorrow is a hearing on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So hopefully within a few days, I think it's likely, since Pfizer was approved, I think Moderna is likely to be approved. Um, recipients, according to the New York Times of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, may need a booster shot. And this is fascinating because I haven't seen any research on this whatsoever. While they could benefit from a second dose of the original J&J vaccine, they may derive even greater protection. Remember, J&J is the single-dose shot in the beginning. If the boost comes from a different vaccine, according to data that came out yesterday, uh, these documents included an FDA review of Johnson & Johnson's test of a second dose of its own vaccine and a separate study that tested mixing booster doses from different companies. You know, up until now, the conventional wisdom has been, you got Pfizer, you got to stick with Pfizer. You got Moderna, J&J, you got to stick with those. I've never quite understood why, but I don't know enough about the science and the, D and the RNA and the technology involved. But this study at least says you could mix, and maybe since Johnson & Johnson had a lower effectiveness rate than either Moderna or, or Pfizer, um, people who are deemed eligible for boosters who did get the J&J shot could get a different booster, and that would protect them even more. This is a step forward. I hope the FDA makes this decision quickly. And I hope we get to the point where anybody who wants a booster can get one. I don't see where it hurts. Maybe, you know, the argument is, oh, it undercuts the message. The vaccines aren't as effective as we thought. Well, they're effective for six, eight months, maybe even a year. We get flu vaccines every year. Um, there are a lot of things that you have to get more than once. I don't really think that that should be seen as a giant negative. And finally, story number five. Uh, Farhad Manju is an interesting columnist in the New York Times. He used to write only about tech. I still think that's his strength. Uh, he has a more general op-ed column now. But he has a piece about Instagram. Is social media harming teenagers? I have no idea, he says. And he makes an interesting argument here. Uh, and here's what he says. In jumping to the conclusion that Facebook's Instagram will ruin the next generation, we, the media in particular, 
society in general, may be tripping into a trap that has gotten us again and again. A moral panic if we draw broad, alarming conclusions about the hidden dangers of novel forms of media and new technology spreading among the youth. And, you know, if you look back the last six decades, he's right. Comic books once had to be, uh, get the comic book code, of, uh, uh, the special code. They had to be approved. They couldn't have too much violence. Television, well, that was going to rot young minds, right? Rock music, and remember Tipper Gore leading a campaign against the, the awful lyrics in rock music? Well, there were some pretty awful lyrics, and then there were even aw- more awful in rap music, some blatantly misogynist and violence. Disco, I, I, I mean, I think that, <laughs> never a fan of disco, but I don't think it did your uh, psyche any harm. And video games, that was, you know, certainly, you know, people were going to want to go blow up cars if they were blowing up. Um, things on Space Invaders, all of that um, were subjects that generated mass panic. I don't know if panic's the right word, but Farhad has an interesting point. Now, of course, there's a preoccupation with Instagram at this point. So he says, look, I understand that, but as a parent of kids just a couple of years shy of teenagerdom, my concerns are more immediate. Should I, at some point, let my children get smartphones and explore the wilds of Instagram? TikTok or whatever actually cool internet thing kids are using now that I've never heard of? If so, at what age? And again, he says, I don't know. There's a potential cost to permissiveness and to prohibition. And this raises an interesting question. Uh, He says, look, there may be, some people say that Instagram alleviates loneliness, family stress, and sadness. Others say no. This obviously became huge during the pandemic when our kids couldn't go out and see their friends. They were stuck in their houses, so they would FaceTime, uh, they would go on Instagram, they would go on Roblox. I'll talk about that tomorrow. And and also, you know, uh, Farhad Manju says, today, for better or worse, the world runs on social media. Do we want to insulate our kids from that? And as a dad, I can tell you, even if you think social media is dangerous and there's too much screen time and and that uh, Instagram is terrible for the body image, of young women, and there's no question in my mind about that. They see these beautiful, unrealistic bodies, and it does Facebook's own internal documents as it can lead them to information about anorexia. But here's the thing. If all of their friends are on it and they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, you know, I'm being excluded. They're all talking about this stuff at school, and I'm not part of it. It is very hard to say no to that. You don't want your kid to be the only. I mean, some people do. They do it. They say, sorry, these are the rules in the house, just because... Your friends are all wasting their time on this. doesn't mean that you have to do that. But the exclusionary factor, the peer pressure, it's hard. It's a parental decision, especially at these ages, no question about it. But it's a tricky one. It's, it's a dilemma. It's hard to know what the right answer is when even experts can't agree. And that's why this column, I think, is worth thinking about. Well, with that, I think I'll go back to my smartphone and see what it's doing. You know, adults have their own addictions, right? I would urge all of you to go to Apple iTunes or, you know, you can get this podcast on Google Podcasts. You can get it on your Amazon device. You can get it at Amazon Music. We're back here tomorrow with more Buzzfeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.